You're listening to the preaching ministry of Redemption Bible Church in New Braunfels, Texas, where we are proclaiming the authority of God's Word without apology. We pray that this message will be a blessing to you as you seek to worship Christ, walk with Christ, and work for Christ, all to the glory of God. For more information about our church, please visit redemption.bible. Thanks for listening, and we hope to see you soon at one of our upcoming worship services. Turn in your copy of God's Word to John 12. We'll be in verses 20 through 36 this morning. But while we're getting there and getting set up, let me just ask y'all something. Who has experienced waiting with anticipation? I think all of us should, right? There, and no matter what it looks like, there's, there's a waiting with anticipation unless something just suddenly comes up on us, right? And that anticipation can be waiting for something good, right? There's an excitement. There's kind of this building of, like, pressure, like, I cannot wait for this to happen. Or on the flip side, it could be that we are waiting for something kind of with a dread, like there's anxiety maybe that goes with it. Maybe it's, it's waiting for uh, something you know you have to do, but you really don't want to. Maybe it's a hard conversation with somebody, um, but usually there's, there's triggers to these things, right? Waiting for a great anticipation. You know, I think about things like Christmas and, you know, my second daughter has a birthday coming up. And there's anticipation waiting, right? Like we've been talking about her birthday for a few weeks. She's excited, right? There's this excitement building and building. And it's coming to that time. And really, uh, I think a birthday is a great example because like she has that positive excitement and anticipation. Some of us, we start getting a little bit older and start feeling a little bit more. Maybe we're on the dreading side, like, oh, another year passing. But it's always going to come. We know that there's a trigger, that it's coming. We know that there's a day. And really, what we get to talk about today is, is one of those moments, but exponentially greater and, and so this is the moment when Jesus finally says, the hour has come. The hour has come. And so we're going to read through it and, and then jump in and kind of see what it says for us. So if you would read with me, it's, uh, verse 20 through 36, and it says, Now among those who went up to worship at the feast, remember we're talking about the feast of Passover's coming, were some Greeks. So these came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and asked him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip went and told Andrew. Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus. And Jesus answered them, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loves his life loses it, and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me, and where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. Now is my soul troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, but for this purpose I have come to this hour, Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven, I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. 
The crowd that stood there and heard it said that it had thundered. Others said, an angel has spoken to him, and Jesus answered, this voice has come for your sake, not mine. Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. He said this to show what kind, by what kind of death he was going to die. So the crowd answered him, we, We've heard from the law that the Christ remains forever. How can you say that the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is this Son of Man? So Jesus said to them, The light is among you for a little while longer. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. The one who walks in the darkness does not know where he is going. While you have the light, believe in the light, that you might become sons of light. When Jesus had said these things, he departed and hid himself from them. This is God's word for God's people. This is a pretty awesome passage. It's, it's a pretty important passage. We're coming kind of to the end of this first section of John. This week and next week is kind of the end of this transition where his life and ministry is shifting, and then we're going to see through his passion. And so this one is the first time in the Gospel of John that he says, the hour has come. And if you think back, the first time he discussed this was with his mom at the wedding feast in Cana, and she said, hey, they're out of wine. And his response was, my hour's not come. Like, what's this have to do with me? And we've seen him say it a few times. We've seen John comment on it when maybe they, he was surrounded by a crowd with stones in their hand ready to stone him to death. And Jesus passed through them because the time had not come. His hour had not come. And now Jesus says, now. My hour has come. And this is where everything shifts. It's a very important statement. It's, it's interesting, though, that it's in a response to these Greeks who came to ask to see him. Right? It's, it kind of doesn't really make much sense, but we're going to see that it actually does. So these Greeks would have been uh, believers in the Most High God. But, but not because of Jewish faith and, and growing up in that, but from outside. They were Greek speakers. They would have believed in the Most High God, not by ethnicity, but by faith. And they come and ask Jesus. But it's interesting, the path they get to ask about Jesus is they go to Philip. And what's funny about that is Philip's the only disciple with a Greek name. And so... Kind of like if I was going to find somebody, I'd kind of look for who looks kind of like me and go ask them, feel a little more comfortable. And then Philip, his response is he goes to get Andrew. And what we see there is really Andrew has been this, this introducer to Jesus throughout the gospel. Like Andrew shows up and he's going to introduce somebody to Jesus. So Philip and Andrew team up and they go to Jesus and they say, hey, these, uh, these Greeks uh, they want to talk with you. And Jesus says something kind of weird. 
Instead of saying, yeah, or I'll talk to him later, or he says, the hour has come. The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. And so what are we to make of this, and why is that the tie? And so some commentators will say that uh, the Greeks coming in, these, these believers who are seeking after him from outside of his ministry area, would maybe be that trigger, right? As we talked about that trigger for the upcoming event, might have been the trigger, and he says, now is the time. Now is the time. The hour has come. Now, whatever the reason, Jesus is very clear that this is the moment, that the hour has finally come, and this is huge, this brings us to our main point today. And so I hope you're a note taker. Write this down. Jesus was glorified through his sacrificial death. And he's talking about the hours come for me to be glorified. Jesus was glorified through his sacrificial death. So there's no mistake that this is the time Jesus will be glorified. The path to glorification leads through the cross through a sacrificial death for us so that we could eventually have life. And that really brings us to our first point this morning. Jesus' death brings life. So as we look at this discourse back and forth, we see that as soon as Jesus talks about his hour coming, the next statement he says some very important words for us. As Bible readers is trying to understand God, says, verily, verily, or truly, truly, depending on if you like the old English or not, right? Truly, truly, I say to you, whatever. And so when we see that, we sit up, we're ready to take notes. Jesus is talking, it's very important. And then he starts talking about wheat. And so we're going to talk about wheat for a minute. Excuse me if you uh, are one of my uh, people who kind of have a gluten-free thing going, but like we're in the wheat, right? Jesus said it, so we're going to talk about it. Um, but it doesn't make much sense. Like, glorify, time has come, truly, truly, this is really important, wheat. So I don't know about you, but I had to do a little research on wheat because I'm just not in that culture. For them, it would have made perfect sense they're in a culture that grows and harvests wheat. It's part of their just lives. And so as he starts to talk about this, it would click immediately. But like I said, I had to do a little research to uh, figure out what he meant, right? And so as we, he, he says there's, there's one grain that's going to die and fall into the earth. Like that's the planting of the seed. And what I found out is as that one seed goes in, it's planted, it can grow exponentially, really. What we see is like, and we're going to do this with averages because I don't math very well, but maybe that seed produces five heads of wheat and each wheat head has 20 grains on it. And so from that one seed, we see a hundredfold increase, one to a hundred. That's the first generation. If you take this out to a second generation of a hundredfold increase, we get to 10,000 grains of wheat. And in just a third generation, we see a million grains of wheat from that one. This exponential growth 
And we're like, that's awesome. Now we can make a lot of bread. But we know that when Jesus does this, when he speaks in parables, when he uses these illustrations, it's, he's not talking about the wheat. He, he's giving a spiritual lesson to us. He's, he's telling us that life can come from death, and there's exponential life that can come from death. He's talking about a multiplication of faith. And how this faith creates life, real life, eternal life. So Jesus is saying there will be exponential growth that comes, this glorification from my death. It leads to life. That is bearing much fruit. So Jesus' death makes a way for us to have eternal life, and in response, we should serve, right? That's what he says. He gets done talking about the wheat, and and he starts talking about those who should serve him. Whoever loses his life, whoever loves his life will lose it. Whoever hates his life will gain eternal life. And then he says, serve me and follow me. And the Father will honor you. So let's look at that a little deeper. Because there's a response, right? There's a response to serve Him. And as we think about serving Him, he start, we think back to this, hate your life. Now, Jesus, the creator of life, doesn't want us to hate life. It's not like some angsty like teenager, like, oh, man, I hate my life, man. It's like he's saying, in comparison to the glory of living in me, there's nothing that compares. It's, it's like hating your life. And in that, in that understanding of that comparison, we are to grow and, and chase after him. And then in that, we're to serve him. And as we serve him, then we follow. What's follow mean? We go where he goes. We do what he does. And remember, this is all captured in this idea that he is to be glorified, and that glorification comes through death. And so he says, serve me, follow me, and and as you do this, the Father will honor you. And we receive honor from the Father when we really hate our life here compared to the glory of life with Christ. I want to turn over really quick to Philippians 3, because uh, I think the Apostle Paul really states this well. Philippians 3, and starting in verse 8, it says, Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection, and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. That by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from 
the dead. And I really love how he puts it because you, you see how he has compared all the things around him. He says that none of it's worth anything compared to knowing Christ, being in Christ, even suffering with him as he did in death. And so I, I ask myself and I ask you this morning, are you living with this mentality? Are you, are you living with the mentality that says, I'm willing to do what he did, like go to death? Maybe it's death of preference. Maybe it's actual towards physical death, depending on where God called you to. But am I willing to go where he goes and sacrifice, do what he did, for the surpassing glory of knowing him? to sharing in his eternal life. So I want you to think on that. You know, am, I, am I approaching my life like that? So we've talked about how this death leads to life through Christ, through his redemptive sacrifices, through the cross. So what else does death bring? This is our second point. Jesus' death brings glory. Glory, like this is a term that we throw around a lot, and, and sometimes I don't know that we are all talking about the same thing. There's, of course, an earthly form of glory, right? Uh, you know, we have a recently coronated king in England, and there was a bunch of pomp and circumstances and robes and crowns, and like some people would say, that's glory, it's not. It's not what we see biblically. It's just not the same. So what are we talking about in this section? As we talk about glory, it actually starts, he said he will be glorified, and then this is where he says, now my soul is troubled. There's a, a struggle in him because he knows he's going to the cross. Not just the brutality of man in that. There's a fleshly response to that brutality, but to the crushing by the wrath of God. He knows it's coming. But he also knows that his death will bring glory. He will be glorified through this. And Jesus is basically saying, look, I know it needs to be done. Like, I don't want to say not happy about it, but I know what's involved in that, right? I know that it will be hard. There will be even that separation from God as he pours out his holy wrath for sin. And he says, I know what the mission is, and I'm ready. I'm going to do it. And that's why he, he says my soul is troubled, but even in almost the same breath, he says, yeah, but that's why I came. So, Father, glorify your name. I'm ready to suffer. I'm ready to pay the price to bring to you the people that you have chosen. And the Father says, I have and I will. I have glorified my name and I will do it again. But as I look at this, like a brutal death, a sinner's death does not like provoke thoughts of glory for me. So we have to look at a different perspective and we have to understand glory. And so 
we're going to talk for a little bit about what biblical glory is. All right, I'd say the, the first glory that we see is, is glory associated with the presence of God. So I think of like when Moses went up to receive the Ten Commandments and God's glory fell on Mount Sinai, there was fire, there was cloud, there was thunder and lightning, there was a dramatic show of power and presence. There was no doubt that he was there. That would be glorious. We also caught a little glimpse in the New Testament as Jesus went on the mountain, was transfigured, right, changed. And, and so it was kind of like getting a peek behind the veil at Jesus' glory as it said he shone like the sun. Like it just caught that glimpse of how glorious he is. One of my favorite uh, illustrations of that glory, if you will, is from Revelation 21. In, in verses 22 and following, it says, And I saw no temple in the city, for the temple of the Lord God is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and its lamp is the Lamb. By its light will the nations walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it, and its gates will never shut by day, and there will be no night there. They'll bring into it the glory and the honor of the nations, but nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. And I just think of that like no need for the sun, which we've been feeling for a while now, right? But just think of the glory, like there's no need for any other source of light, just the shining glory of God will be everywhere. So that's the glory associated with His presence, but there's also the glory associated with Him, who he is, his attributes, right? And we think through some of these attributes. We have God is love and he's good and he's righteous and even his wrath. All of it is glorious in itself. One of the great examples of this is in Exodus 33. Moses is crying out to him. He says, God, show me your glory. And maybe he's thinking, like, I want that experience like Mount Sinai again. Like, show me your glory. And what God says is, I'm going to hide you in this crevice, and, and I'm going to cause all my goodness to go before you. He doesn't say his, his power, his presence. He says, I'm going to cause my goodness to go before you. And that is the glory that he shows and each one of his attributes is fully glorious in itself. And then when you combine it, like, it's unimaginable how glorious he is. So there's the glory of his presence. There's the glory of who he is. And then there's the glory of what he has done. And so if you've ever maybe for the first time stood at the edge of the ocean, there's a glory associated with it. It's amazing. 
or maybe the, the Grand Canyon as you look at this creation that God has made, or even little things that like you're just amazed. That is his glory and his creation and sustaining of this world. But there's also the glory, which we're talking about here, which is the glory of Jesus' work in the redemptive plan. The glory of not only who he is, but what he did and what that means for us. And there should be a response to glory, should there not? Like when we see glory, that should evoke something in us. We want to give God the glory He is due. We want to worship and exalt Him. We want to live this out before others, always pointing back vertical to our glorious God. And one day, we get to be in His glory for eternity. And so we we get that glorified body. Like I was talking about the, the birthdays, like I'm ready for that glorified body. Like this thing's breaking down a little, right? But the reason we get that is because we will be in his glory. That's the glorification that we have to look forward to. We get to be in him. We get to be his bride. We get to be his. So Jesus has said that it is time for him to be glorified. And the Father says, I will, I have and I will. And the people give a response. God's voice speaks. They hear this thunderous noise and they attribute it to heaven. An angel must have spoke to him. And Jesus reminds us, this isn't for me, this is for you. And we get this little, little experience of glory, and in that, there should be a response. It should set our hearts heavenly. It should change our perspective, and, and we should respond and acknowledge His glory. So what's the idea of glory mean for us, here and now? It means the same thing it did for them then, right? It means that we have life here and now, we in our life, we give glory to the one who gave us that life. We recognize his hand in it. So how does this look? Maybe it's if you get up early. I try not to, but if you get up early and you see a glorious sunrise, give glory to the one who created it. Or maybe it's a sunset or one of those moments that you just feel overwhelmed by his glory and creation. Give God his glory. Maybe it's when you think on the miracle of your own salvation. Your salvation in Christ that should overwhelm us. It is miraculous and we should give God glory. Like every day as we remember this. Maybe it's you realize your sinfulness, the, the sinful desires in your heart and how you continually come and God is faithful and continually forgives us. He's patient with us, those attributes that just reflect his glory. Give God the glory he is due. Give God the glory for who he is and what he's done. This is the glory that Christ is doing, what he has done. 
He said he'll be glorified. He's referring to his death on the cross. We know his death brings life, brings glory. Also brings something else in this passage, and that's what we're going to talk about next is Jesus' death brings judgment. Jesus' death brings judgment. He's very clear in verse 31. He says, now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. And so it's very clear. This judgment is on sin. It's on the broken and sinfulness of this world. And it's on the ruler of this world who twists and uses temptation to, to continually defeat or try to defeat the souls of the righteous until Jesus' glory on the cross broke that. This is a judgment against sin. And so we want to talk about you know, how judgment works. This is the moment of, he says, now is the judgment of this world. The judgment has been passed down. Now we know when Christ died on the cross, his, he, he gave the payment for sin, right? The payment of death for your sin and my sin. And in that, he broke the power of sin, that we no longer are slaves to it. We can live in freedom from it. We don't have to be shackled to sin. But if we look around, we know that the presence of sin is still a problem, right? But here, the judgment against that was made. We know that he is just, he is true to his word, he will fulfill this judgment, and so we wait for it. And talking about glory, when he returns in his full glory is when we'll see the, the culmination of this judgment. So we see the punishment of the world, the punishment of the ruler of this world, but there's also another judgment that it talks about here, and that is the judgment between Believers and unbelievers, the sheeps and the goat, the ones who would be chosen for adoption and those who would eternally choose separation from the favorable presence of God. Now, Jesus says that he is to be lifted up, and it rightly says this is to show us that the physical lifting up of him on the cross, that he is going to die for us, but it also alludes to the spiritual lifting up as he rises from the dead, as he ascends into heaven in glory to make sure that this judgment goes through. And so we see, he says, through that process, judgment, he will draw all men to him. Now, I think if we, we think in our mind, we might know somebody who is not saved, who, who the judgment has been laid down that they're separated. And so we look at this and we say, how can he say, I will draw all men to me? And really what this does, is it brings us right back to verse 20 where it talks about these Greeks coming to him. That, that trigger point that he knows now the time has come, the hour is here for him to be glorified. It's this idea that drawing all men is, is not every single one, but more of a, all kinds of men, the, the Jews and the Gentiles. And, and I don't know if anybody has Jewish background. For, I'd say the vast majority of us here are in the category of Gentiles. 
right? So praise God that he drew all men to him, all kinds, every walk, every tribe, every nation, every tongue. And so we, we get that. We see the, the judgment of sin. We see the judgment that separates believers from unbelievers, the ones who would not believe. And this is important because Jesus knows their heart. John has made a point repeatedly about Jesus knowing the heart of man. And so he knows that there are those who will not believe, will not follow. Right? Eventually everyone will believe, everyone will bow, but these are the ones that will not follow the Christ, the Son of God. And so in this judgment, we see that the world has rejected the Christ. They have rejected the Savior through the sinful killing of its own creator. You you cannot reject any more than that to say you are the creator and we are going to kill you. In fact, in John 1, he, he states that he, being Jesus, came to his own people, people he created, and they did not receive him. They didn't believe. They wouldn't allow him to come and change their hearts. They were rebellious. And so they would eternally refuse to follow him and refuse to give him the glory that he is due. So we see this judgment brought on the world, brought by man's own sinful actions, the rejection of Christ, the decision to walk in darkness. John 3, 19 told us another place of judgment. It said, and this is the judgment that the light has come into the world and people loved darkness rather than the light. Remember, we're talking about that that contrasting and comparing of darkness and light and how John uses that. And here he says, like, they loved the darkness. They loved the sin in their life. They, they loved that more than the idea of an eternity with their creator. Which brings us to our last point today, which is believe in the light. In verse 35, says, Jesus said to them, the light is among you for a little while longer. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. The one who walks in the darkness does not know where he is going. While, while you have the light, believe in the light that you may become sons of the light. So we see this image of light. We know that it is, is the, the glory of God shines, right? Creates this light not only in heaven but in our lives. It's repeated throughout John, not only the Gospel of John, but his epistles. It's repeated in Revelation. And it's very relevant to us as we think about that darkness in our lives. We see the new Jerusalem needs no sun because the Lamb of God is the lamp. He shows us how to live. He shows us how to glorify God. He calls us to believe and follow. He is the light. He's the light that brings life. He has told us to walk in Him, to walk in His sin-killing, glory 
glorious light. So Jesus makes a statement here that it's time now to choose. All around this, right, he says, you have me for a little while longer. You got you to gotta walk in the light while I'm here. Darkness is going to overtake you. And what's interesting is he's, he's kind of putting an ultimatum here. Because if you look at verse 36, the last second half of it says, when Jesus had said these things, he departed and hid himself from them. He, he said, look, I've been walking I've been teaching, I've been doing miracles, I've been showing you who I am. Now's the time. Walk in the light, believe in the light, and become sons and daughters of the light, of God. And he's like, hey, I want this to be urgent. Like, There's repeated places in the scripture where it says today. If you'd believe today. Make the choice today. And Jesus is kind of giving him that, like, it's time. It's time to make that choice. But he also he knows their hearts. He knows that some of them will choose darkness. It says the ones in darkness wander around. They don't know where they're going. They're lost, spiritually lost. It says that there are those who will be overtaken by the darkness, who kind of might be dabbling on the side and they kind of want to be in the light but really love this darkness over here, like you said earlier. The, the temptation of darkness is so prevalent in our society. It's everywhere. And we have to be aware. We have to be on guard against it. And so he tells us, while you walk in the light, believe in the light, that you may become sons of light. And that that sons is plural, that sons and daughters, that children of the light is hugely important for our walk. As believers, as we walk in his exposing light, we get to do it with others. And it's so awesome to have like people from your small group and people in your church body that come along and they say, hey, be careful, you're, you're drifting into the shadows there. Like, come back, get on challenging us, encouraging us in our walk. And that light is very exposing. And I want to ask you guys right now, like, are there parts of your life, maybe not your whole life, but just parts that you're trying to hide in the darkness, that you're trying to keep? Maybe it's one of those things that you love that, that draws your attention and heart from Christ. And you don't want that to be exposed. I will tell you, lay everything out in his light. It is a sin-destroying, death-defeating light. It is glorious light. And we're called to walk in it. And I'll tell you, like, that can be hard, right? It's a little scary. There's vulnerability. Like, if I'm walking fully exposed and you see my life, and you can call me out and say, hey, see you wandering a little like it can feel scary but it is so good it is so good not to carry those weights hide those things feel shame feel despair like just to walk fully in that light and you we get to do it now just like we'll get to do it in eternity so i'm gonna ask you like 
Are there parts of your life that you are hiding, that you're trying to keep in the shadows and the darkness, things you don't want exposed because you're fearful that somebody will actually call you out on it? We should be asking ourselves this regularly. Is my whole life exposed to the glory of God? And in that, am, am I able to give God glory through my witness? And the beauty of it is, is he uses that light to progressively sanctify us, right? Little by little, step by step, day by day, make us more like Jesus. Glorifying our Savior. And he told us his time has now come, his hour is here for him to be glorified. So as we walk through this text, we, we've learned some things about what Jesus meant when he said his hour had come that he was to be glorified. We know that he was referring to his impending death on the cross. We know that that death would lead to life, exponential life, eternal life. It would lead to glory, his glory that he is due for who he is and what he's done. And it would lead to judgment, which can be hard, right? But that judgment allows us to come to him, to be drawn to him, to walk in the light of Christ, to live out a life that is glorifying and honoring to him. And so that's what I want you guys to take from this, is am I living to give him the glory that he is due? And what's that look like in my life? How am I living to give him that glory? Will you pray with me? Father in heaven, we love you. We're thankful this morning, thankful that you are the light of the world. You are the glorious light of heaven. You are the powerful, life-giving, life-sustaining, glorious one. Our Savior, that you willingly died for us, you paid the price for our sins. And now, Lord, help us to walk in the light. Help us to believe in you, to who you say you are and what you have said you will do. Help us to go where you go, to do what you've done. Pray that we would be a, a witness that brings glory to you, Lord Jesus. And it is in your matchless, beautiful, and glorious name that we pray. Amen.